0: Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Philippe Humeau, CEO and founder of CrowdSec, a cybersecurity startup that's raised over 21 million in funding. Philippe, thanks for chatting with me today. Uh, My pleasure, Brett. Yeah, so before we begin talking about what you're building at CrowdSec, could you
1: share a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. I've been a security pentester at heart uh, ever since I was in school, you know. I met uh, here guys that was uh, cracking games back in the days for Amiga and Atari mainly, and... um, it happened he was my age when he was cracking the games I was playing with. So I was 10, I was playing games, he was around the cracking them. And I met him in university, I was like, you're really that guy? So he took me down the rabbit hole of sec- security and it, it was a forever crush ever since. So I've been a pentester, I've done also defensive security, and now I'm the CEO of this new company, uh, which is CrowdSec.
0: Amazing. And before we dive into Crowdsec, I think for the audience to understand a bit more about what makes you tick, could you share your favorite book that's had the greatest impact on you as a founder?
1: Yeah, I'd say, I mean, Thinking Fast and Slow is probably the one that would come in mind by Daniel Kahneman. I'm not sure of the pronunciation though, because it's all about sorting out how you work. You know, are you instinctive, emotional? How do you play fast and slow? Where do you take time? How do you frame things? It's really important and uh, it was a great uh, insightful reading. Very cool. And now if we dive into CrowdSec, when it comes to how you
0: explain the problem you solve and your technology and how it works, can you walk us through that?
1: Yeah, sure. So basically we used to have a category called IPS, IDS back in the days, it was called intrusion detection system and intrusion prevention system. So those software, were running on the internet-exposed, internet-facing machines, so servers, right? And um, what they did is they were in charge of checking if someone would knock at your door, trying to guess your password, trying to credit card stuff you or uh, something credit card numbers sorry, into your PSP or scan you in any way and so on. And the category somewhat fell into, I don't know, into the abyss and people were not much looking anymore for it. But with the ransomware, ransomware taking over, people realize that they need to be aware when there are scans happening, whether HTTP scan, port scan, when there are like shenanigans on your payment getaway or things like this. And not only this, when there are bad behaviors in the general way over the internet, could be scalping, could be VYP, you name it. So we wanted to take over the legacy of fail-to-ban, a very distinguished IDS back in the days, Mm -hmm. but we wanted to have something new with it. We wanted to bring something new on the table. And what we would bring is collaboration in a ways fashion. So if your machine is being grasped, say by, I don't know, uh, ransomware, let it remove, maybe it's the same case somewhere else. And the same IP address is behind both attacks. And if there are enough of us reporting this IP address as being you know, aggressive, then we'll share it into a block list to all the users in the system. Some kind of internet neighborhood watch or something like this, if it makes sense. And this is the way we work. So we protect you on the behavior standpoint, looking at your logs, passing the logs and checking if there are bad behaviors in there. If there are bad behaviors, we use a second component to block this behavior from happening to prevent any further risk for your systems. And then we all together curate a global block list that is very dynamic. It rotates 12% per week. Mm-hmm. And... um. You receive constantly, day-in-day-out IP addresses that are aggressive towards your internet stack, Mm -hmm. and this is protecting you as well. Actually, 92% of the protection is done by this reputation component by the block list, and 8% is left to the behavior engine.
0: Got it. Interesting. And when it comes to this product's market category, how do you think about market categories? Are you
1: building a new category or transforming an existing one? I'm thinking it's a real mess lately. So you know, the problem is as soon as you try to leave marketing doing proper job, they all go drinking beer and start pissing in every other flower pot. And they <laughs> give names to things, and it's terrible mess because the thing yesterday was named A and then it's named B, and then if you're not B, then you're nothing. And I'm playing pissed, you know, I'm fed up with this, so everybody wants to be an lately, right? We also this movement, you, there, there are no more antivirus. They are all EDRs. They are just glorified antivirus, but whatever. Then I've met people in the black hat this year, and they're all pretending to be XDR. I was like, but what you do is a CM, actually. Yes, but people have budget for XDR and not for CM. I'm like, oh gosh, we're not solving problem here. We We are actually creating some. So this category space is kind of complicated. You have to fit somewhere because otherwise buyers don't see you. But if you are disrupting an industry or if you're thinking differently, you don't have a space yet. You are in a blue ocean strategy, which is my case. So what we do sell is signals. So as such, we are a CTI. And we're probably the biggest CTI on earth so far because we collect from 100,000 different machines in 175 different countries. But are we just this? No, we also an IDS and an IPS. And people will tell you, yeah, but those categories, they're not trendy anymore. And I'm like, yeah, I don't care because it responds to a real need.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And when it comes to, you know, category creation or building categories, have you had any interactions yet with, you know, firms like Gartner or, you know, is Gartner the one to blame for all of these different category terms?
1: Well, I don't know if they are the only ones. Thing is, sure, is they are detecting trends or, but they are also trying to impose trends, to be honest. Because they work with clients and clients have stakes and those stakes are, please create a new category with a, where I'm the leader, you know? And if you pay a hell lot, uh, Gartner, Forrester, all the others, chances are that you will create a category, uh, you know, that fit your needs. So. I wouldn't blame them. They are still, you know, in contact with clients trying to buy smartly uh, and allocate the budget. Mm-hmm. But yes, they are partly responsible for that. Now, whether there is a need for a new IDS IPS category, I don't think so. Whether there will be one, of course, because everything needs to be renamed every other day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. I like your passion here with the uh, the market category topic. That's always <laughs> fun to hear. <laughs> Now, if we switch gears a bit, let's talk about your target market. You know, who is the target market for your products? And when it comes to the size of this market opportunity,
1: how big do you think this can get? I mean, it's huge. It's, it's tagged as a 30 to 20 billion market and growing. So people are buying signals. And the ones that are buying signals are usually the large corporations, banks, insurance company, uh, media, eventually, uh, all the people that are doing CMS, These are the players that are really interested in knowing, you know, what's happening, when is happening and where. And if you speak VPNs, for example, or manufacturer of IoT cameras and all, they want to know who's scanning the Internet, who's getting, you know, hold of their uh, camera to create a botnet of their VPN entry points to get inside the network and cipher everything. So basically the market is everyone for the block list part, for the curated uh, thing that protects you. But for the signal part, like really the one, like we see a lot of activity. We see 16 million threats per day, 16 million violations per day, if you want. We cannot all get them into a block list. It would not be curated enough. It would trigger false positives. So basically, across the 7 million IP addresses we are watching continuously, only 20 to 25,000 make it to the block list. That way, we're sure that there is a 100% success rate and no false positive and no poisoning attempt. So what is it with the seven other millions, roughly? Well, you can use them in a CTI environment. You can actually query MISP or OpenCTI or DI or whatever you're using or connect it to uh, systems you already have internally and query APIs on IP, sorry, with your API, with our API. And we will tell you what we know about this IP address. Like send an IP address to us and we'll tell you, we saw it over the last hours doing this kind of that kind of activity and so on. So obviously, a lot of businesses are interested, but I'd say for the signals, it's mainly the very large businesses that are buying them. Got it. And then what's the
0: go-to-market motion there? Is this product-led growth, enterprise sales? What does that look like?
1: No, it's absolutely PLG. I mean, you're right, uh, p- product-led growth, sorry, because our clients are mainly in the first place our users we are an open source company an editor you know it's the tool is a mean to an end so we edit a free IDS ips and they are generating these heaps of signals and those signals are feeding back better security to all those IDS and ips users so it's a virtuous loop we also offer a console you know Mm -hmm. so all of this is for free so what we get out of it is really these signals, and the market traction is huge for this. We had contact with the DoD in the U.S., with tons of banks of insurance, of e-commerce companies, CMS. Lately, we've worked with GetShield, which is a WordPress plugin, and the guys are doing a great job at protecting WordPress instances, right? But they wanted to have this correlation of signals on a world scale. And this is exactly what we're doing at CrowdSec. So they adopted the CrowdSec engine. And now we see a tremendous amount of signals that are targeting WordPress systems. And every WordPress using uh, Getshin, for example, is better protected because they are kind of protecting each other. Right. So the traction is, is really enormous. And that's why, as that's how we rounded probably 110,000 installation in two years. And we are going toward a million. We march toward a million. So yeah, growth is exponential. This is the value of the company is definitely its assets. It's definitely its network and community. And this is what our early investor, Brega, understood. Uh, they did a sitting round based on this. We told them like, we're not going to do any money, right? You are conscious of that. We're not even planning on making money uh, at that stage. We just plan on expanding our network exponentially. And then we will make money because the value of the signal getting out from the network will be worse a tad, you know. So mm-hmm. that's how we we sold it to the to the first investor, and now we have an A round, and this is time for us now to go monetization route.
0: Got it. That makes sense. And you know, PLG is obviously like a big buzzword. It seems like in every SaaS market that exists today, but it seems like it's been very slow overall in terms of adoption in cybersecurity. Why do you think that is? Why have cybersecurity vendors been slow to embrace PLG?
1: Well, for once, they are overloaded. I mean, there is so much business around that they are very, very occupied. So if they already have a product, it's really hard for them to be back in the PLG motion. Because it's all about like listening constantly to your user and modify your product only based on your user feedback. And that takes a lot of time. So it's easier to do when you're a startup and you're creating a new product. Then when you're a Cisco, you know, and you have like 10,000 different products, it's, it's just not possible. And even at places like CrowdStrike or Sophos, they are listening to the feedbacks of their users. But if you can tell like, okay, it will be in the next release next week. No, come on, it's going to take months. And that's kind of normal, given their footprint. So PLG is comfortable when you're a small company. I don't know how doable it is when you're in a larger one, actually. Mm, got
0: it. That makes sense. And, you know, bringing an innovative idea to market is never easy, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, what's been the greatest challenge you've had to overcome so far?
1: Well, when, I mean, we are an open source company, so there's two branches, if you want, in the open source tree. So the one that thinks that every open source developer should be living like a monk, feeding from edible moss in the forest and, you know, give this work for free and uh, eventually uh, never see anyone. That's bullshit, right? I totally see the second way because if you want your software to be maintained on the long run by qualified people, then those people to be dedicated to the software, you need to pay them. And lately in the cybersecurity field, you have to pay them a lot. So it means that you require a lot of money to run, that the burn rate of the company is high, which is normal. So you need to kind of get uh funding for that. Mm-hmm. And this is a key component in the thinking. So bringing an open source company to the market is not easy already. Because you're telling the investors, guys, we are giving something for free. But trust me, we have a plan. Like, yeah, sure. What's the plan already? And then you see, okay, the network is growing. And they're like, okay, okay, you have to network effect. I understand it. Now, out of this network, do you think you can sell those signals? I'm like, yeah, of course. No, but will there be people, be people to buy them? Yes, it's a 30 billion market. Everybody is buying signals. That's normal. That's the way you defend yourself. But are you sure? And you're like, okay, guys, if you want to be an insurance company, be an insurance company. If you're a VC, you have to take risk. And the risk is we have a network effect. It's growing in value. It's growing in size. We're getting tons and heaps of signals. Is there a client really? Is this your question? And guess what? It is. That's the biggest question we had. Like, are you signals of value for the market? And I'm like, okay. Well, you know what? We work with the one that understand that data is power in cyberspace space as well.
0: <laughs> Got it. And are the investors that have you know invested in you so far and in, in this most recent round, are they based in
1: Europe or are they US investors? That's a crazy story actually. You know, we had contact with a lot of Tier One VCs in the US. I won't name them because it's not a shame all or whatever. But as soon as the Nasdaq went a banana around earlier, earlier mm-hmm. this year, everybody dropped the pen. The guy was like, sorry, we cannot finance pre-revenue anymore. Goodbye. I'm like, Guys, we're speaking for six months. You love the idea, you know the team behind. So what's wrong? Well, the Nasdaq went down twenty percent, moron, goodbye. I'm like, <laughs> okay. So basically one day to another, like literally no answer anymore from the US. Like, okay, so back to the European guys that are usually slower to adopt, but slower also to discard. And we found another French firm, the second French fund, uh, to support us. And I was surprised because we are considered usually like slower, slow movers in the space. And as a matter of fact, the French funds were faster than the US one. And as soon as we were monetized, the U.S. fund will be back to us saying, okay, guys, we need to work together, but the price tag will be higher. But I think in the mindset of uh, the USBCs is they don't care to pay more when proof are made that you're bankable. As long as it's not there yet, they are uncomfortable. Whereas the uh, European one are more risk taking in the seed uh, area. And not able to put as much money as the U.S. one when it comes to B-Rounds, for example. Got it. Makes sense. You know, that's one thing that I've heard from
0: quite a few founders in Europe over this year is, you know, the U.S. VCs are very quick to pull a deal and they don't see any reputational risk of pulling a deal, you know, very late in the process. But what they were saying is that in Europe, investors are too afraid to do that. They can't you know, weather that reputational risk of being the VC that you know, pulls a deal at the last minute. Uh, is that something yeah. that you've seen as well?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely right. I mean, it's very well put. I probably uh, wouldn't phrase it better than that. Actually, there is a huge risk taking if you uh, just you know, write off a deal. They, You will be asked tons of questions and the, the market is smaller in France than in the U.S., obviously. So if someone is asking, why have you done that? And have you heard about this company? And more or less, the the investment fund is fried. So yeah, they are very careful. And you know what, if you get a no from Sequoia or A16, that's kind of normal. I mean, you expect it's going to happen if they do a write off what you will say, okay, Sequoia did this to me? No, because you're burning yourself. Now, in Europe, if you do the, this kind of thing, it's not the, the company suffering, it's rather the investment fund. So yeah, you're probably very right in this description. Mm, got it.
0: Makes sense. And let's switch gears here again. Let's talk about what excites you most. So what excites you most about the work you get to do at CrowdSec?
1: First thing is definitely the community effect and the network effect. I've always dreamed of creating a network effect. I find it's fascinating because the cold start phase of the network, meaning when you have no one. And you have to get traction and convince people that you will have network effect, and you know it's a self fulfilling prophecy. And you have to find a way of kickstarting, building off the network. And once you have that, people start looking at you and changing stance. That can they really create some kind of ways of firewalls? Really? I mean, that has to exist already. And they do. They start searching. And they're like, No, it does not. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's no kind of network effect of cybersecurity. Really? Right. And they look at us and they see the figures and it's exponential and they're like, "Oh God, they are creating, creating some kind of Facebook of cybersecurity. We have to be there." So <laughs> it's interesting to start, you know, confronting opinions and discussing with peers. And they are looking at the angles where they can defeat your your thinking and your strategy. And it's very rich discussions with very smart and brilliant people, and you get inspiration every day. And the bottom line is. They thought that the weakness would be curation of the signals, right? That people would poison us with a wrong uh, signal, wrong information. Like, I don't know, uh, an adversary sending us bad information that maybe your IP, Brett, is rogue and doing a pulse scan on a global scale. Mm -hmm. But actually, we have algorithm. I mean, it was highlighted very early on as a risk and we have algorithm to deal with this. So nobody can tamper with this kind of the, uh, this part of the consensus. So yeah, thinking constantly with a brilliant team, a small, compact wolf pack, dealing with them every day and exchanging around ideas with our peers in the in the industry is really fascinating. Way more than a regular desk job for me.
0: Nice, I love it. And you mentioned network effects there, and you know, your passion for network effects. Where did that passion come from? Did that come from reading Andrew Chen's book, or where did that begin? <laughs> for you?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, the book is great. I mean, honestly, the book is absolutely great. I would recommend it to anyone willing to think about network effects and because he lived this inside out in uh, Uber mm-hmm. and sharing this experience he had in Uber is really insightful. So not everything is fit for network effect. And most of companies that are claiming to have one have kind of a community effect. I've, I've gathered, you know, fanboys or something like this, but they are not really understanding deeply what network effect is. A network effect is about like getting stronger every time someone is joining and getting more valuable every time someone is interacting constantly. So it's really hard to pull off because when you start from zero, explaining the future value is not easy at all. I mean, it's something that requires a lot of education. You constantly are on the road explaining why tomorrow collaboration will be solving a problem that money didn't for the last 40 years. Because let's be honest, for the last 40 years, years we have been sending money at the problem. Mm-hmm. What is the outcome? Even if you spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, of millions of dollars, sorry, into your cybersecurity defense, you still get hacked. As simple as it is. I mean, look at the biggest company in the world. They get hacked. And I can think Microsoft or Twitter or whomever, J.P. Morgan or others, don't have huge security budgets. Did it make a difference in the end? Nah, not much, right? So, is this is because of the Captain America approach. It's, you know, you fight alone against an army. And Hollywood makes us think that you can fight alone against an army, you know, Avenger movies and all. Mm-hmm. But the reality is you when you fight alone against an army, you lose, period. No matter how better you're equipped or whatever, you just lose. So to defeat an army like the cybersecurity uh, threat actors, you need a bigger army. You know, that's a, just a good old fashioned military thinking here. If you have a big army, I have a bigger army. I will win the game, period. So the network effect here is about having a bigger army and showing everyone to the world that if they collaborate together, even though the, indirectly through us, they will all get better protection and somewhat for free. I mean, there Mm -hmm. is really a free tier that is is exceedingly generous in our offer. So you can get protection for free just because you're part of it. Exactly like Waze with the network of roads, you know? Mm -hmm. It's the same principle. So at the beginning, nobody knew about Waze. But when your cab started to use it, you know, and you were like, oh, wow, it's cool. Your GPS is looking super cool. And Mm -hmm. what is this red dot? Oh, it's because it has a slowdown. It's a new app. It's called Waze. Okay, Mm -hmm. next thing you know, Twenty thousand people are using it. Next week, two hundred thousand, and it becomes a de facto standard for avoiding road hazards.
0: Yep, amazing,
1: cool. Well, we're down
0: to the last question now. So, if we zoom out into the future, what's the five-year vision for CrowdSec?
1: Well, we should reach one million machine partaking into the network uh, that are all belonging to a vertical. Because you know, right now the way we get our signals is essentially honey honeypot uh, in the industry. Like industry is using honeypots, so they are creating fake machines, pretending to be vulnerable, and collecting signals through this way. The problem with this approach is it's nothing realistic. So what you get is a background radiation from the internet, nothing really targeted or exceedingly dangerous most of times. So our clients and our users are sitting in a vertical. They are running real businesses, real machines, providing real services, and being attacked by very real cyber criminals willing to make real money. So it's an entirely different paradigm. So since they are belonging to a vertical, we can say, for example, all oh, these IP addresses are aggressive toward media or toward banks or toward automobile industry, right? Mm-hmm. And what is interesting is like, for example, you can even go deeper into this, the understanding of what's happening in the data lake. You can see, for example, that some IP addresses were only aggressive toward media in France during presidential election. But the same IP addresses were aggressive in Germany during the chancellor election Mm -hmm. and in UK during the renewal of the parliament. So what does it tell us? Actually, those IP addresses are not aggressive toward uh, specifically media, they're aggressive toward democracy. And by having a huge network of this kind with very real users in very real verticals, we can see second order effects. We spoke about network effects. This is a second order effect. Like every signals, gives you, draws you a global vision of what's happening uh, in the cyberspace world. So we should have, five years from now, an entirely real-time list or map of all the addresses using by cyber criminals. If one is used, and we don't know about it yet, it will be added to the block list in minutes. And if one is released by the guys and is not used anymore, it will disappear from the block list in minutes and eventually down to seconds if we are enough partaking into this effort.
0: Nice. Amazing. Well, unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. Before
1: we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Hey, CrowdSec.net. CrowdSec.net. Be careful just close to the C on your keyboard. There's maybe an X and it's a totally different website. So CrowdSec.net. Amazing. Well,
0: thanks so much for your time here and look forward to seeing you execute on this vision. Let's keep in touch.